Hello and welcome to Smith and Sheridan on Biotech, a podcast on the business and science of biotechnology, presented by myself, Cormac Sheridan. And me, Andy Smith. Hello, Cormac. How are you? Hello, everyone. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. Now, I think today we're not going to focus too much on the science. We're looking at the business or a certain aspect of the business. And it's more pharma than biotech in the sense that pharma companies tend to be at the business end of the drug value chain. They're typically the companies that commercialize the products, charge the prices and collect the revenues. And hopefully that results in good outcomes for the patients who are on them. And at your suggestion, Andy, we're taking a look at the likely implications of the Inflation Reduction Act on the pharmaceutical industry. What do you think are the most important aspects? And I suppose just point of view of background, the Inflation Reduction Act is a vast body of legislation that encompasses America's transition to renewable energies, huge amounts of spending to achieve a shift away from fossil fuels and embracing renewables, changing infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's voluminous. Some of the savings that will be generated in areas of government expenditure, such as government spending on drugs through its Medicare scheme, will go towards funding some aspects of this. And it's fair to say that the pharmaceutical industry isn't particularly happy about it, is it? No, and you can see that's why that would be the case. I mean, at its very top level, the Inflation Reduction Act was brought in to address tacitly, I suppose, the annual price increases that drug companies apply every year or perhaps even twice a year and to keep that level below the rate of inflation. Again, I mean, it's quite laudable to do that sort of thing. And it's been superseded by higher rates of inflation than were ever applied to drugs by yearly or, or annually. So that aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act, in fact, the actual synonym is academic now. One of the other aspects that creates most desire is for for the government or Medicare, a part of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That's a Medicare is that Medicare drugs are dispensed and prescribed to seniors in the US, whereas Medicaid drugs are programs for the people without employment and below a certain threshold of earnings. In that respect, the aspect of the CMS, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, looking at its biggest drug costs and saying, we can't afford to do this. Because the rate at which the elderly population in the US is growing uh, is going to mean that Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare largely, is becoming underfunded or will bankrupt it effectively. And, and that, of course, can't happen. And as you say, the Inflation Reduction Act got bipartisan support. And who you know, the other target, incidentally, or the other tacit target, is the out-of-pocket cost paid by people in the US who need it to get their prescriptions filled. And who can argue with that? You know, I mean, you can't argue with the inflationary aspect of drug pricing. And largely, as I've said, that's academic. You can't argue with the fact that, yeah, it's important to get the the cost. And there was a study, I think, some time ago by the IQVIA Institute. And I think it's something like 25 or 30 percent of prescriptions are abandoned at the pharmacy if the out-of-pocket cost is over $25. That's terrible, right, for people to go in and get their probably life-saving medicine, insulins or 
SGLT2s or uh, hypertension drugs and realizing when they're charged, charge $25, $30 that they can't afford it that week and they just walk out of the pharmacy. Those aspects is not surprising that those aspects got bipartisan support. And it's not surprising that with the growing US senior population and the number of drugs that are prescribed to elderly people, because you know, as we get older, we take more drugs to keep us alive for longer. So the government or the federal cost of those programs is going to get pretty scary. So that's where the Inflation Reduction Act comes in and the focus on Part D and Part B, Medicare drug spending, the gross spending or the amount of that. So in order to get that down, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services will identify initially 10 drugs, then 15 drugs, then another 20 drugs eventually. And they'll renegotiate those prices directly with the pharmaceutical industry. And the slightly exciting bit is that that's actually going on today, early November, so that they're actually having those discussions at the moment. Isn't it a weird quirk of the American system that until now, the CMS was actually forbidden to engage in drug pricing and negotiations. It was yeah. the biggest buyer of these products and yet wasn't able to negotiate volume discounts, wasn't able to say we're not actually happy to spend that. They were a price taker rather than a price setter. And, and, and sometimes I, in life, you know, there are these things that stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And that the inability or the illegality of Medicare to negotiate one of the biggest purchasers of US drugs to negotiate the pricing on those drugs was one of those sore thumbs. And I mean, okay, just for the listeners who mightn't be following this too closely, the first 10 drugs that are subject to the Medicare price negotiations, I'm going to quickly list them if people have the patience. There are two anticoagulant drugs, Eliquis from Pfizer and Bristol-Myers-Squibb and Zarelto from Johnson & Johnson. There is two sodium glucose transporter, two inhibitors. I might have that incorrectly. SGLT2 inhibitors, very important drugs in diabetes and heart failure. Um, Jardians from Bringering, Edelheim and Eli Lilly, and also um, Farzaga um, from AstraZeneca. Mm -hmm. There's a heart failure drug, Entresto from Novartis. There's a cancer drug called Embruvica from AbbVie. There is Johnson & Johnson's anti-inflammatory antibody Stellara, and there are two fast-acting insulin products from Novo Nordisk, Fiasp and Novolog, and all sorts of form factors and flavors of those products. And these are all multi-billion dollar selling drugs for the most part. And a fair chunk of those product revenues actually comes from Medicare the Part B scheme, several billions. And also now we have... I think six manufacturers and two industry groups have filed lawsuits seeking to declare that the Medicaid drug price negotiations are unconstitutional or unenforceable. I'm just quoting from a, a recent piece in Forbes by Joshua Cohen. These obviously will take place in various jurisdictions over the coming months, I'm assuming. It will be very interesting to see how they'll play out. I have no idea if you have a view or not as to how that's going to go. I think you're not putting your lawyer's cap on. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a lawyer. So this is just a personal view of looking at the sector for a number of years. But I have described it, and you know this, Cormac, that the Inflation Reduction Act will end up being a bit of a storm in the teacup as far as the pharmaceutical sector has been concerned. 
And some of those drugs you've mentioned, Imbuvica, uh, for instance, and other Stellara, they'll be either generic or biosimilar in the reasonably near future. So what is the point of discussing about those when generic drugs or drugs with a generic approved and on the market or a biosimilar are excluded from the Inflation Reduction Act? Whatever effect in those particular drugs, it won't be won't be very long or it won't last very long. Conversely, the first two drugs you mentioned, the anticoagulants, you can see they are big spends for the US governments because as we get older, our hips and knees wear out and we need operations to replace those. And then after that period, for a period of time during and after that operation, you need anticoagulant therapy. So there are lots of those drugs by sold by seniors. So the first aspect of generics and biosimilars are excluded from the Inflation Reduction Act might turn out that those aspects or those drugs or, or potential price renegotiation for those drugs was a bit of a flash in the pan or a storm in the teacup. But there are others where it will come down to the government saying, well, look, you charge us this much for this drug. And the interesting thing is that the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services already know what a discounted drug program looks like because they run them. So the US government has the Veterans Administration, which has a discounted drug program. It has Medicaid for low income people that has a 25, I think it's 25 or 23% mandatory price cut on list price. So it knows how to do this sort of thing. So you can sort of see, I think investors have been really worried about the Inflation Reduction Act and its impact on their pharmaceutical companies that they invest in. But at least if you know what the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services know in terms of their discounted program. At least you know how bad it could be to start off with by looking at the other discounted programs and saying that's as bad as it can get. Bad or good, depending on which side of the table you're sitting on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because obviously the drug costs in America versus other countries have been several fold higher since forever, essentially. And it's an extraordinary situation Looking at it from an outsider perspective, I can't understand how American patients have put up with it for so long and whether or not these will have any effect on reducing inflation rates. But the drug companies themselves have been introducing inflation busting price hikes on a regular basis. I mean, just those two anticoagulants, which of course are so important as well to prevent stroke in people who've got mm. cardiovascular disease. They're and so atrial fibrillation, which increases with age as well. So, yeah. Precisely. And the patients for affordable drugs, I think, had a, a very interesting report about those two drugs. Zarelto, which is the Johnson & Johnson product, its pricing has increased by 136% since its market introduction in 2011. And similarly, Eliquis has had a price increase since its introduction in 2012 of 111%. Mm -hmm. That's not if the drugs have gotten 136% or 111% better. They're the same drugs. And they're great drugs. Let's make no mistake about it. They're wonderful modernization of the anticoagulant effect that used to be mediated by warfarin, which was a medical sounding name for rat poison. Mm -hmm. uh, which was a very risky drug to take because of its very lack of specific effects. These two other drugs are factor 10A inhibitors and they have a very specific effect and they're much safer. You don't have to get your levels tested. You don't have to worry about your alcohol intake. And warfarin is still used widely because it's a cheap mm -hmm. drug, but it's, it's a drug with an awful lot of 
added cost for the healthcare system as well, let it be said. So these drugs are wonderful, wonderful additions to the drug armamentarium, but uh, but they are expensive. Also, and, and, and as you say, they've not got better over time. They've not been yeah. reformulated significantly to make them better drugs. In fact, if anything, the patent life is ticking down over time, so they get more to it. But the, the figures you quote, and in fact, the figures that Centre for Medicaid and Medicaid Services have also quoted, are the list price increases over time. And while patients out of pocket or total drug costs is directly correlated with the list price of drugs, pharmaceutical companies don't get paid the list price of drugs. They get paid the net price of drugs, where price is discounted after rebates and other discounts are applied by the largely commercial and even for Medicaid, Medicaid Advantage, 40-odd percent of Medicare enrollees have some private aspect to their scheme run by pharmacy benefit managers. So that in-between aspect, that margin, if you like, of discounts and rebates, that can be a significant amount. And Bristol-Myers Squibb, in their complaint to the federal government, said something about the amount of the list pricing that CMS has quoted as two or three times the total US price or US sales that Bristol-Myers Squibb earned on that particular drug. So to go back to your original point, one of the main reasons why drug prices are higher in the US and other parts in the world, partly is because it is a fragmented market, but also it's a fragmented market with large commercial interests. And in America, like many other places, nobody really gets out of bed unless they earn a profit. So you're not going to administer drugs to that many 300 and odd million people if you're going to earn a profit out of it. And those administrators of those drugs, the pharmaceutical, the pharmacy benefit manager and the insurers, take a large amount of that profit from the pharmaceutical companies or they actually never pay it to the pharmaceutical companies. They just, they just get discounts. And that's But the important thing is that patients pay their cost is related to the list price not the price that pharmaceutical companies are paid per drug or, or you know, per dose but still i mean just to put the numbers down eliquis generated as far as i can make out sales of 11.8 billion dollars in 2022 and um, zarelto generates another 7.2 billion dollars and these are the revenues booked by the pharmaceutical companies so these are amongst the top 10 or 20 biggest sellers in the industry. These are large amounts of revenue. But the other question too, though, I mean, you raised the point earlier that no drug that has generic competition will fall under the Medicaid drug price negotiation scheme. These drugs, just these two in particular, they're amongst the, the longest on the market of the first 10, not the longest established, but they're both venerable drugs at this point. Eliquis was first approved in 2012 and Zarelto was approved first in 2011. And I mean, normally the composition of matter patent on a drug would be uh, about 20, 20 years. And if it takes, say, seven years or so for the development to occur after the disclosure of the patent information, you might get 13 years on the market or so. And a lot of these drugs, they have notoriously held off generic competition or they've limited generic competition through legal and commercial maneuvering. And obviously, the whole premise of drug pricing rests on the notion that, yes, we will charge high prices during the patent life of our product. And then when it goes generic, it will be available for tens of dollars, possibly. And it, 
when a drug goes generic, it's one of the best value propositions available. But prior to it, the cost is high and particularly high in America. But I think there's a huge frustration about the maneuverings to extend the patent life. And I can't understand, again, there will be a lot of popular support for a very clear-cut position to take on the patent life related to the sort of commercial life of a product. Whereas we have some drugs that are lying around the place for 20 years and they're still charging branded prices. And I think that's a real problem for the industry. And I think it's one of the reasons why an awful lot of people are just playing their tiny violins when they hear the drug industry saying that innovation is threatened by many efforts to curb their profit taking. I can take your point on certainly some of those aspects. And we come back to the, it must be anti-American not to make a profit or anti-commercial not to make a profit if you've got a good product and you want it to be without exclusivity or retained exclusivity long enough. And your point, I think, resonates with one of the worst of those, uh, Abvi's Humira, which should long since have been biosimilar and is just about seeing biosimilar competition now in in the US. It's been biosimilar in, in Europe for more than a year now. And again, this is this highlights the disparities between the US and ex-US markets. In well, I spoke to a in 2017 to no 2018, I spoke to a pharmacy manager in the UK who was anticipating, relishing the day when Humira went biosimilar, because in her hospital her hospital group it was the single largest drug cost this is the nhs we're talking about the pricing differentials were always there between the us and the uk but even with that humira was their largest single drug cost so she was anticipating that now it's uh, and and europe embraces biosimilars like no other market they've got the tendering for that sort of thing down to a fine art to drive the prices down but in the us as you were hinting at earlier the labyrinthine dysfunctional aspect of the US healthcare system means that pharmacy benefit managers, for example, have formularies. And if there is a cheaper option out there, like cheap biosimilar insulin or biosimilar Humira, if it doesn't generate as much profit for them as the branded version, then it won't be on formulary and their, their insured lives won't get offered it. That's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? We used to think of the term financial toxicity only applies to certain cancer patients in the late stage of their disease or they couldn't afford their therapy. But it's spreading out into other therapeutic areas now, even diabetics who can't afford their insulin, when the other good aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act was it brought in a price cap for insulin. Now, uh, insured lives with commercial entities aren't largely, it seems, not, aren't getting the benefit of that. And also, none of these discounted prices will kick in until 2026, am I right? Yeah, and it's a bit of a paradox because, as you say, Humira was on the original list. There would be biosimilar competition in the US. There might not be many prescriptions written for biosimilar Humira by that. And Ibruvica may be a generic by that stage, but there are others potentially. So again, we are perhaps worried about some drugs that will be excluded from the Inflation Reduction Act by the time the price renegotiation comes in. And they should be, by that stage, cheaper. Mm. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But yeah. 
point you were making that it's a storm in the teacup, it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, Medicare's leadership will obviously need to show some results. They'll need to show some numbers in order for this to be a political and a financial success for the American taxpayer. But so much of it seems to me to be because of all the other factors you've mentioned, a bit of it's going to be fiddling around the edges here, but maybe this is a start and maybe it's a long-term game and that it will result in, over time, some sort of a price control mechanism for Mm. medicines in the USA. As you were hinting earlier, it doesn't apply to newly launched drugs. They have to be on the market for a certain period of time, which sort of intersects with that patent life point you were trying to make earlier. So it's only only those companies that have been on for a long enough time. And it almost brings forward genericization of pricing genericization. It, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's seven years, I believe, is the period yeah. of time. Or, right? or, or I think it's 13 or 12 years for biologics. But, but yes, yeah. Oh, wow. I mean... It, to me, the whole thing, the whole patent thing, it's another question entirely, but arguably it's not working for society properly. And another reason why your last point, as you look back, that CMS needs to scalp to say, look, this is what Congress empowered us to do. And this is what we've done. And we're both old enough or long in the tooth to realize that there may be some cosmetic aspects to that, which are tacit by nature, but aren't actually financially big impinges on the sector. And one of those could be that they say, well, we looked at Medicare Part D drugs or these particular drugs, and we looked at their discounts and we brought them down to 23%. Well, that's not far away from what the PBMs, our pharmacy benefit managers, are generating or the discounts are generating. And it's not far away from what Medicaid are generating at the moment. So it could be a, a small win. The important part is will whatever cost savings are generated by the Inflation Reduction Act be passed on to the patients, which is who this whole out-of-pocket thing was directed against. And my fear is that they won't. They will be absorbed by the middlemen that come in between the pharmaceutical manufacturers and the patients, whether it's drug wholesalers, whether it's pharmacy benefit managers or insurance companies, and they won't see the benefit of what was intended, a great piece of legislation that intended the best for them. But there is this cap now on out-of-pocket expenses to patients of $2,000, right, per year. Yeah, and that's for Medicare Part D enrollees. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So people who have Medicare Advantage, so that's where you have you know, 43% of seniors that have some commercial aspect to their senior insurance. And Medicare Advantage includes another things like dental, for instance. So you pay for that extra, but th- that's excluded for the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's a number of these things with legislation, the exclusions and other things that carry the effect. So then just looking at the completely other end of the innovation cycle, Pharma, in some of its responses to what's been going on, has said that they've done some surveys of their members and that uh, this is impinging on their R&D strategies and R&D planning and it's creating uncertainty and all the rest of it. Now, at the best of time, R&D planning is always an uncertain art or science. Um, Your strategy always has to come under review. So it's just another external among many that they have to look at all the time. And I don't know if you can make any sort of rational response from an R&D prioritization perspective 
with respect to whatever programs you're going to back in terms of your early stage pipeline in the light of what's happening here? Uh, I, I think you can. I mean, yeah. you know, portfolio management staff and commercial people in pharmaceutical organizations, they have their models. So they know how long a drug's patent life is expected to be. They know uh, today's pricing, what it will generate. And you can quite easily add a line on there that says Inflation Reduction Act effects on that. But we've seen also, and we haven't mentioned the biotech sector much, but it has, as you said, impinged on the biotech sector because we've seen a number of biotech companies like our Nylum and I think Neurocrine as well, that actually said they've canned their early stage drugs because they're going to be affected by the Inflation Reduction Act. This is before they've even got on the market. This is before they got anywhere near the market. And anyway, neither of those two companies' drugs are what you're going to call, you know, that will ever appear on Part D list for price negotiation. So translation is they were crap drugs anyway. We're just taking the inflation reduction as an excuse to can them. Yeah, or because, it, yeah, you could argue it's sort of a bit of posturing maybe. Because, I mean, a lot of what they're doing would be, not all of it, but a lot of it would be orphan drugs, right? So, yeah. uh, and again, another exclusion yeah. from the Inflation Reduction Act is the orphan yes. drug. Precisely, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's a, a murky subject. As you said, it's purposefully opaque. <laughs> the Byzantine business of drug pricing in America. And I suppose it's just going to get more Byzantine because this is yet another aspect that determines the drug pricing. So I suppose if nothing else, it's going to be a good time for the lawyers and for the the payers and negotiators and all those kind of commercial people. This is when they'll uh, establish their economic value to the organizations that employ. And, and wouldn't it be ironic if the legal costs of fighting the Inflation Reduction Act were greater than the added cost to pharmaceutical companies who are conducting that litigation? I think it would be a great tragedy for <laughs> yeah. Anyway, on that note, I wish you well. To the and next you. Time. Yeah. Uh, and you, Cormac, and goodbye, everyone. Thanks, Andy. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.